Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Badass Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Fox. Now that mood pitch is over and pitching season has pretty much come to a close for the year, it's on to NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. So just a really quick check-in. Are you participating in NaNo this year? How's it going? I'm on track to catch up in the next day or so. I had a lot of work with mood pitch prep and other work, so I knew I wouldn't be writing during the first few days of NaNo, but barring any crazy busyness for the rest of the month, this novel will be drafted, the parts I've already written will be revised, and by the beginning of December, it'll be on its way to beta readers, if all goes as planned. So wish me luck with that. And remember, sometimes plans change. Shit happens. Life throws curveballs at you, and that's okay. The fact that you're trying to reach your goal shows that you're dedicated and determined, and that's what counts. So speaking of beta readers, I'd like to talk about that part of the writing process really quick, because many of you are probably participating in NaNo, you're trying to get your manuscript drafted, you're going for the gold, you're going to have something readable and presentable to beta readers in order to get your first round of reader feedback. I use beta readers as my first group of people who provide feedback from a reader's perspective. So these folks can be writers, but you can also just get a handful of folks that aren't writers to read your manuscript, because this is kind of like your first audience. These are the types of people who will be buying your book when your book hits the shelves. So these are some of the questions that you might want to ask a beta reader. What are their initial thoughts as a reader of the story as a whole? What do they like? What do they not like? Were there any parts that really excited them or that bogged them down? What parts made them want to put the book down? What parts made them want to stay up until 3 a.m. reading just a few more pages? Did they connect with the characters? Why or why not? What themes resonated with them? Did they like how it opened? Did they like the ending? Were there any parts that made them laugh or cry or feel angry or some kind of emotion? Did it feel consistent, cohesive? Did it flow well? Was there anything that didn't make sense? And were there any questions that came up about the plot or the characters that they didn't get answers to by the end? So these are the types of things you want to have your beta readers answer for you. This kind of feedback is like a big picture feedback, and it's where you need to start your revisions. Critique partners, on the other hand, are writers who you exchange pages with so that you can critique each other's work from a writer's perspective. So this is still going to be big picture feedback, but it's also going to be a little bit more technical, but it's also going to zoom in and look at close-up things that a reader who's not a writer might not think about because they're not used to the writing process. So things like character emotionality and interiority, things like proper use of dialogue tags and action beats, like focusing on what's important to character development or the overall story arc, and what parts don't contribute to the story. Things like line-level writing and suggestions on how to improve it. Editors do this as well, but on a much bigger scale, and there's no exchange of pages. So this is something that's usually done after you've implemented the feedback that resonates with you that you get back from your beta readers. So when you're finished your nano project, whether that's at the end of November or the end of April, that's okay. Use your beta feedback to guide you into the next stage of drafting and then go to your critique partners or an editor. 
Because as we know, writing is a long process of rewriting and rewriting and rewriting several times over until we get it just right, as good as we can possibly make it before it's ready for agents or publishers' eyes. If you've never sent your work to betas or critique partners or an editor before, it can be a really scary process. I get it. But trust me, it's a necessary part of the process. Getting feedback is crucial to improving your writing, and we all need improvement. Even if we've written 10 bestsellers, we still need to have critical eyes on our work because that's what helps to make them bestsellers. Writing a story only takes one person, but making that story out of this world fabulous takes a community. So don't be afraid to reach out and make some writer friends and exchange pages. All of those bestsellers you see, there were a ton of people behind those bestsellers. And keep in mind too that when you critique others' work, you learn a lot from that too. And it's things that you can take back into your own writing process and style. I'm going to move on to today's guest, but before I do, just be aware that there is talk of suicide in today's interview. So my guest today is Joshua Center. He was raised in the Ozark Mountains of Missouri, where he was homeschooled along with his four sisters on a 500-acre cattle farm. He received a bachelor's degree in filmmaking from the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, along with ninth term honors. Since then, he's written for the hit Showtime series, The L Word, Desperate Housewives, where he was nominated for a Writers Guild of America Award for his episode, Don't Look at Me, and ABC Family's Chasing Life. During that time, his debut novel, Daisies, was published by Diversion Books. He also worked as a writer and producer for the hit MTV series, Finding Carter. In 2015, Joshua was placed on the tracking board's Young and Hungry list as one of the top 100 writers working in Hollywood. From 2016 to 2018, Josh wrote pilots for ABC, Fox, and NBC. A Valentine's Day movie he co-wrote for Freeform called The Thing About Harry aired in February of 2020 and was nominated for a 2021 GLAAD Media Award for Outstanding TV Movie. Still the Night Call is his sophomore novel, published in January 2022, and it has won Best Literary Fiction in two different contests and named Best Indie Book by Kirkus Reviews. So welcome, Josh, and thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you. I mean, there's so many accomplishments there. That's awesome. Well, and the th the funny thing is, like, I think even since just recently, the book won another award. It won the bronze medal uh, for best literary fiction at the uh, Reader's Favorite Book Awards. Um, awesome. And so I just got that notification. And that was really exciting because that's kind of a big, you know, that's a, for in independent and self-published books. That's a really big deal. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so can you give us a premise for Still the Night Call? Yeah, it's basically about a dairy farmer who right at the beginning of the book, he says, this is the last day of my life. And basically he's suicidal and he's going to kill himself. He's going to close out all the chapters of his life that he needs to close in the, the next 12 hours of his day. And then he plans to say goodbye to the world because he has no hope for his future um, or the future of his beloved rural world. And he is in a place based on where I grew up, which was Plato, Missouri, which was a very rural area of right smack dab in the middle of America in the Ozark Mountains. And, you know, 
what the story initially is, is about this guy's suicide. But then what it becomes is a story about how desperation has gripped so many people in America and how that has become a tipping point towards radicalization. Right. And it, it kind of sounds like you've sort of come full circle in a way with Still the Night Call because you grew up on the farm and you went to L.A., became a screenwriter. Um, and now you've written this novel that kind of explores some pretty deep themes. So like the suicide rates of men, political radicalization, social and economic divides in America. Was there a particular moment or experience that led you to this character in this story? There's a couple of things. One, it's very interesting to for me to be uh, someone from a farm in Missouri coming to Hollywood and realizing once I get out here, oh, the thing I want to write about is the Midwest. Um, I kind of believe that as a writer, it's not until you sort of like leave a situation that you can look back and write about it correctly. It's when you're in the middle of a situation, it's very hard to know like mm -hmm. what the truth is for yourself, I right. think. So I got out here, I'm become a screenwriter and I'm becoming a very successful screenwriter. And I realized like, but I want to tell stories about Missouri. So no one, there are not a lot of places in Hollywood that are like dying for content about rural America. So I realized like, oh, I'm going to have to do this like as a book. And mm -hmm. the pandemic the riots on the Capitol, um, the stark divisions in America, um, the statistics you mentioned from the CDC about men being four times as likely to commit suicide than women, and the fact that suicide rates are highest among white men, and mm -hmm. the occupation with the highest suicide rate in America is farming. Right. Um, those things were so shocking to me, especially because I grew up in that area and then I started reading these articles in the Atlantic, the New Yorker, the Washington Post about how there are so many dairy farmers that are killing themselves. And my best friend growing up, uh, they had a dairy farm. They were some of our closest neighbors. It was about five miles away. And I spent so much time on that dairy farm as well as other dairy farms. And I thought, God, I need to write something about this epidemic that's like happening right this mental health disaster that's in, unfolding in middle, middle america and um so that's what i did what do you think or, or how, what have you researched what have you found out to be kind of the reason what's the correlation there in that particular career you get a real understanding and i think that's what most people when they read my book they sort of start out going like what is this and then they mm -hmm. read it and they're like oh my god i understand things about how farmers are suffering in America in a way that I never did before because large corporations are buying up all the dairy farms, especially with dairy. And they have computer systems and means of like churning out milk at prices that smaller dairy farms cannot afford. They also, the regulations that are then levied upon these bigger dairies Smaller dairies, they can't afford to update their equipment, their sewage ponds, things like that. And so they're slowly driving these smaller dairies and these smaller farms out of business. Mm -hmm. And in rural areas, it, it's more expensive to go to a small farm and pick up milk than it is to say, go to a big farm where you have, you know, thousands and thousands of gallons of milk um, that you're picking up every day. So 
there's a sort of desperation there uh, mm -hmm. as these rural farmers are realizing, like, I can't compete with these big corporations. And by the way, the big corporations own 80% of our food. Yeah. And then they own not only our food, but they own the grocery stores that sell us our food. Mm -hmm. It's a really wild situation that no one is giving any, um, no one is shedding a lot of light on. Michael Pollan, who's an amazing writer, he's somebody that I've, I've read every one of his books and I respect him a great deal. And I read an article of his in the uh, New York Times where he was talking about how even with Michelle and Barack Obama, when they were in the White House, they had this plan to cut the 2% milk out of school uh, lunches. And when they did that, it sent shockwaves through the dairy farm uh, industry, because when you cut even a percentage out of the milk, that's a lot less milk that they're needing to produce. And it hurt a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So it's just one of these problems that like, no one really understands. And we also are setting ourselves up, at least in America, because you have such big corporations running such an important piece of our lives that if something goes wrong, there's not going to be an easy way to pick up those pieces where if, you know, things are spread out amongst small, smaller farms and smaller um, in rural communities, pieces can be picked up much easier. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's it's a complex issue and yeah. it's one of these things that it's hard to explain fully. But when you do read about it in the book through the eyes of this character, Calum, right. you go, oh, I get it. And that yeah. was really important for me to share. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's important to hit on topics that aren't explored a lot out there mm -hmm. and and to do that in books is, is really good. Um, like I said, there, there's a lot of kind of heavy themes there and there's dominoes effects that come from these things. Do you think that these kinds of themes will come up again in future projects? Yeah, I think for me, I love writing about the Midwest. So mm -hmm. the next book that I have that I've just finished is uh, it's about a suburban couple who has to go back to the Midwest. Um, this woman, she's married to a man and he's a big, uh, fundamentalist um, uh, Christian preacher and he's outed for being gay and they have to go back to his uh, parents' farm in the Midwest to sort of like reevaluate their lives and figure out like, what are we going to do? They have three kids and they love each other, but like mm -hmm. he was having an affair with a male prostitute. And so, you know, once again, I get to write about the Midwest in a place that I love. And then the book that I'm currently working on called Twine is also it takes place in the Midwest and it's a sort of uh, murder mystery. The thing about all of these books is that they're about complex characters. And I really love exploring people who are not black or white, left or right. They're sort of just, especially the more of a mess, the bigger the mistakes that they've made, mm -hmm. the more questionable behavior that they are doing it's like, what has driven somebody to do that? Because right. people aren't innately, there are, you know, sadly, people with mental health issues who are sociopathic and psychotic and, you know, so sad. Mm -hmm. But for the majority of humanity, we are good people. But occasionally, even the best of us have bad days, we do bad things. But what drives us to that place? When I was working on Desperate Housewives, that's 
what I loved about that show. And I think some of the things that I learned working on that show are things that I've now carried into my writing and will continue to carry with me throughout everything I write. You know, when you have desperate housewives, housewives who are, who are desperate to do whatever it is Mm -hmm. to like make ends meet, to keep their families together, whatever that thing is, that's a, I think complex characters are what people are searching for because we are complex. Mm-hmm. And the more we see our own complexities reflected back at us, not only do we feel less alone, but we realize like we can, you know, especially in the case of Desperate Housewives, we can kind of laugh at ourselves and say like, oh, it's okay. Right. <laughs> I'm yeah. just a human, you know, and that's <laughs> at the end of my life and the end of all my writing, if I find out that people feel that they have accepted their humanity a little bit more because of my writing, then I will have accomplished a great deal. Oh, that's wonderful. I, and I love that you take these complex characters and complex situations and, you know, things that are happening in the real world and put them in a setting that is very near and dear to you. That's wonderful. It's great. It means a lot, especially in the hustle and bustle of LA to be able to sit down and write about the countryside Mm -hmm. in Missouri and sort of like forget all of the crazy that can be in the big city. And just even if I can't, you know, go back there and walk the hills like I used to whenever I was a kid, I can do it in my mind. And it's it's therapy. It's really great. Nostalgia. Love that. And with all of these kind of ongoing issues, like the world is just not a very friendly place right now. And it just seems to be I don't know where it's headed, but it's kind of scary. (laughs) Um, So with all of these ongoing issues that the world is facing, how do you think that that might impact the future of storytelling and publishing, if if at all? Well, you know, what's so fantastic about where we're at right now is that while scary, it creates such an opportunity because when you, it's just like with the food situation, you have these big corporations and they are just buying up more and more and more of whatever it is that they sell, you know, whether it's television studios that are buying, they're buying other television studios and then they're becoming streamers. And it's just becoming like three big corporations that are running all the content. And the same thing is happening in books. That's really sort of just grating. It's terrifying. It's like, we should all be very concerned about that. The great thing is that as they do this, the content that they're turning out becomes more and more and more bland. It becomes deductive. Mm -hmm. And I think that for those of us who have stories to tell and we're willing to put the work into getting them out there, there is an audience and it's only going to grow of people who want to read something that causes them to think it's like a full meal as opposed to just having McDonald's, you know, it's a, it's like going and have it when you find a good piece of writing or a good writer, you go like, Oh my gosh, what else do they have? And because of what's happening, writers like myself, I mean, I couldn't get a single publisher to look at still the night call. So it was like, well, I'm going to put this out there myself. I'm going to self-publish this. And you know what? It's done really well. I mean, mm-hmm. aside from the war, uh, the awards and things like that, the fact that I can take a book that I've written and I can advertise it on Instagram, on social media, on Google, 
these are things that 10 years ago, a writer who's putting out a self-published book, they couldn't do. Now right. you can. Yeah. And if you have something to say and you have some talent and you have a full meal to give to someone, people are hungry for that because we just continue to get this sort of like watered down corporate nonsense. So I think that we have the opportunity to break the rules mm-hmm. and create a whole new style of storytelling because when you're doing it yourself, you can break the rules of vocabulary. You can break the rules of storytelling. You can make unlikable characters. You can do whatever you want because no one is saying no. And that's the, another, that's another thing about, you know, living in, in countries where, you know, you you have free speech. Use that. I mean, we're, 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 we're called upon to do that because only when we do that, can we inspire other people? And you look at countries like what's happening in, in Iran right now. And you go like, like there's a reason they're fighting and they're getting thrown in jail because they want what we have, which is this freedom. So mm-hmm. like, let's do it. Let's use it. And I think that instead of sort of feeling there's this ominous sort of presence that we can go, oh yeah, that's there. I see you presence. And now I'm going to go over here and I'm going to do something that you weren't expecting. And this little, this little David is going to tackle the Goliath and we're going to win. And I do think that that will happen. I think I there's love that take on that. Yeah. 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 Amazing. So in this particular story, I'm curious about what came first, the plot or the character. And is that something that always happens when you write? That's a good question. Let's see. I think with this, the story came first. It's just such a, you know, being creative, as you know, it's just like, you never, you just sort of like something will happen. It triggers a little thought in your mind and some thoughts go away and then some thoughts sort of begin to blossom. And then you like, you know, tend to them a little bit more. And then next thing you know, it's like, oh, this is a full on, this is a full on plant. It's a full on tree. (laughs) Um, Originally, still the night call, I was going to write it about my gardener, my former gardener here in LA. He's, he was illegal. He was an illegal immigrant from, I think, Guatemala. And one day I was talking to him. He's very, uh, well-spoken, seemingly very well-educated guy. And I was like, you know, why are you gardening? And he's like, well, I have my degree in biology from a very prestigious uh, school in Guatemala, but I can't use it here in America. Mm. So he's like, but I came here with my family to get away from violence. And I wanted to, you know, I have to provide for them. And I thought, what is it like to be a gardener who's you know, pretty smart, savvy yeah. dude. And you're seeing, and you're, you're tending the lawns of all these big houses with all these people with all their, you know, first world problems. And you've come from real problems. And I thought, what is he thinking? And so I started, I wanted to write that story. And then I realized like, what am I doing writing a story about a gardener from Guatemala? I, I don't know that I have enough of an understanding of that, but I thought I can tell the story of a dairy farmer from Missouri, who's a smart guy but who's in a very uncomfortable situation and get into his mindset. So I sort of just transferred this sort of story to this sort of different plot. And then it was interesting as I was like, okay, so this guy that I'm telling the story about, he's a dairy farmer. He's, he's, he's a smart, smart guy, but he's in very stressful, a very stressful circumstance. And then I thought like he's suicidal as these dairy farmers you know, it's coming out that so many of them are killing themselves. And I, I had had three different friends 
who were friends of mine. Like I, I, I loved them. They were, they committed suicide over the course of like two or three years. And when the last one committed suicide, it was, I mean, it just wrecks you. You go like, what, what did I miss? And I, I, so that felt, it was like, I have to incorporate that. I have to incorporate that because I have to use this book as therapy to talk, to sort of like voice those people that I loved to give them voice, what mm-hmm. was going in, on in their heads. And then as I'm working on this, you know, the Capitol riots happen and you just go like, oh my gosh, what drives someone to just yeah. storm a Capitol? <laughs> and it all just sort of started to come together. Like, oh, this book is about how people become radicalized by literally feeling hopeless. Yeah. So it was, um, it was sort of a story first and then it became plot. And then it became something much, much bigger and much deeper, which is, I always, I teach a, a I teach a class at USC uh, in TV writing. And I always tell my students, like they come to me with their plots and I'm like, okay, the plot is fine. Like the concept is good, but what are you really wanting to say with this? Mm-hmm. Because the moment you say something more than just like, this is not a story about a train robbery. This is a story about X, Y, and Z. And the moment you make it personal, that's when that story pops and people can relate to it and they go, oh, wow. And it becomes something more than just, just sort of a plot, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. The relatability factor is so, so important. I think that's that's one of the main things that is going to, you know, drive your readers to read your book. You were mentioning about teaching the class. Um, so, I'm just wondering because I don't I don't write for the screen. So what are the differences in the writing process itself between writing for the screen and writing novels? Well, you know, writing for the screen is very immediate. <laughs> you, you especially if you're working on a television show, um movies are very different. They can take years. I mean, I I've been working on a couple of projects and it's like, "Oh my god, this has literally been going on for 2 years." <laughs> uh television is pretty fast. You pitch something, you know, it either gets made pretty quickly or it doesn't. And especially if you're working on a show like Desperate Housewives or any of the other series that I've worked on, you know, you write something and 3 weeks later it's airing. And oh, wow. so that's, you know, it can be very exciting and it's a, it's great for learning because mm-hmm. when you write something and then you see it like air, you go like, oh, I shouldn't have done this or I should have done this other thing. And also I will say this about writing for television. I think that there's a lot that you have to basically, when you're writing a television script, you have to put a lot of information in the fewest lines possible, action mm-hmm. lines and dialogue lines for your characters. You want to create a character, it's going to take like some really precise writing because you don't have a lot. You're not writing a novel. It's not not 900 pages. It's 60 pages. Mm -hmm. And those are like double spaced, you know? So I think with book writing though, and this is why I think people love reading my stories and my books is because like I am very precise and I get to the point. But with book writing, I get to sort of like, take the time to think things over in my mind. I'm not, you know, with books so far, I, I'm not writing for anyone else. I'm writing for myself. And I just hope that it means something to people outside of, you know, me. Whereas television, like your job is, oh, you're writing for a big audience. You you need, we, we had 20 million people tune in last week. 
And this week we want 21 million. So it's like, it's, it's high stress. You're writing with a group of people. It's a very different process. Um, and books for me, I just love it. I just, I get to be by myself. I get to be in my own little world. There are no rules. And I get to sort of go where I, I want to go with the plot, with the characters. And it's, uh, yeah, it's very fulfilling. Yeah, absolutely. And especially with when you're writing a book, you can explore that character's interiority because that's something that can't be shown on the screen, right. but you can absolutely show that in the book. And that really helps with that relatability factor as well. Absolutely. And it sounds like you definitely have a love of screenwriting. It mm-hmm. sounds like you also love novel writing and you've kind of pivoted to that. What is it? Is there anything specific that draws you into both? It kind of sounds like you covered that a little bit with the novels. Yeah. You know, I do love both. And I re- and then I started teaching over here at USC. And I have to say, that's also been wonderful to like see the process that other writers are going through and to help guide them with the, the lessons that I've learned over the years. But I don't mind sort of bouncing between television writing, feature film writing, and book writing, because I feel like when I go from like one project to another, like sometimes I'll have two or three projects going at the same time. And it's kind of a palate cleanser because I think writers who are able to distance themselves from their writing, they can judge their writing without sort of any rose-colored glasses on. Mm -hmm. The moment you're too close to your writing, the moment your writing is too precious to you, it's probably not very good. Every time I write something, you know, and and I think, Oh, this is just fantastic. Oh my God. I, I, I'm going to cry. It's so good. <laughs> I read it to someone or someone reads it and they go, um, you know, you know. <laughs> and it's only when I sort of write and I'm like, and I'm thinking about structure. I'm like thinking about the writing. Like I'm thinking about what makes good writing. And I'm it's, it literally becomes like almost a little bit of a robotic process and an out of body experience. Uh, I sort of out of my own head into the writer's head. And that's, I get into that sort of uh, mentality. And I write because I know that these are the right, like, I want to write a story about a guy who's suicidal, who's a dairy farmer in Missouri. And I I really, I want to do that well. So I, I take all my tools and I begin using them and I begin chiseling away at the story, but I don't hold it to myself in this sort of romantic notion. I I write it as a writer, if that makes any sense. And when I do that, and then I step away and I go work on something else, like a television script or, and I come back later, I can see all the holes. It's like, oh, because I've, I've completely left that world behind. Right. And I think it's really helpful for me to have a couple of different, you know, to have my television projects and my teaching and my books and um, and then just my life in general. And then you get to come back and you go like, oh gosh, like I was way too close to this when I was writing it. I need to do a better job or I need, and you know, I have to say, you know, people say that writing is, it's a lot of work and it really is. It's, I'm not one of these people that just sits there and writes something and then I think it's done. It's like, no, you write something and then you rewrite it and then you rewrite it again. And it's not done until 
even still when I call, you know, I'm like, people love it and it's getting awards and all of this. And I'm still like, oh, man, maybe <laughs> I should have expanded that. Or maybe I should have written that in a clearer way. It's, and that's, that's, I think that when you start doing that, you can never stop sort of like feeling like you can make it better. Yeah. Uh, that's when you become a real writer because I think a lot of times younger writers, they just write and then they're like, oh, it's brilliant. And it's like, oh, no, it's not. Mm -hmm. But the, the moment you realize like it's never brilliant, you're not brilliant. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> that's whenever it's like, oh, people start responding. Yep. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I mean, me personally, if I take a look at something that I wrote a long time ago and at that time, I, you know, you think, yes. oh my God, I love this story. It's yes, so good. Yes. Everyone's going to love it. Um, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, they're not. But yeah. it is important to put yourself or to, to put some distance between yourself and that story because yes. you're going to be doing other things and learning and experiencing other things in that time yes. that you can then yeah. take to that when you go back to it. And I think, like you said, it's a process of writing and rewriting and rewriting. You can get the story out, get the plot out, get the characters yep. doing what you want them to do. But after you have that first draft done, give yourself some time and space from mm -hmm. it and then go back and look at it after you've had that time to to think mm, and, and to analyze and think, you know, like, mm, I don't know. I liked that to begin with, but maybe I could do it better. And yeah. you're exactly right. Once you start analyzing it like that, I think that that shows your growth as a writer for sure. Well, and and one thing that's really fun, I mean, it's, it can, if you can do it, it's great, but like mm -hmm. write something, then go read one of your favorite writers, like just read yeah. an entire book and then come back and read your writing. And you'll go like, Oh my God, this is so terrible. <laughs> yeah. And that's really helpful because then you go like, oh, I want to fix all of this. And then you mm -hmm. know what? Drop it again. Go read another great book and then yeah. come back. And each time you will start, you'll start getting better because you'll also stop making some of the mistakes. Mm -hmm. You know, that's one of the things that like, if people think I write quickly, no, it's not really that I write quickly. It's that I've made so many mistakes mm -hmm. from so much bad writing. And I have written, you know, there's a book, there's two books, there's, you know, a few television shows, but in between all of that are thousands and yeah. hundreds of thousands of pages of writing no one will ever see because I wrote it. I gave it to a few people. They were like, mm, this isn't working. And it just sort of died. And then, and I, later on you go like, oh, I understand why they, the concept wasn't fully there. or mm -hmm. The characters weren't fully fleshed out. So you know, you learn from those mistakes and then you just start writing a little smarter each yeah. time. Those are the tools, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to remember too, not to like when you, when you write something and then you go and you read your favorite author's yeah. book, don't compare yourself and your writing yeah. to it. Don't look at it like that because then you're, you're never, you're just going to be like, Oh God, what's the point? <laughs> yeah. 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 You have you to have read to it and yourself... analyze it. Yeah. Like allow yourself the room to grow yeah. and figure out what you want to say. And, and, you know, there are writers that I just, oh, I love reading them. I will never be able to write like them yeah. and that's okay. Yeah. That's, you know, that's part of the reason I love them because they're completely different than me. Your voice, your individual writing style, that's, what's going to make you stand out from right. other people. So embrace whatever it is that you do and don't let people tell you like, well, you can't do that. Well, 
there are some there are some rules, but you learn those rules well enough, you can start breaking them. And then exactly. that's when things get exciting. I there's something I tell my my USC students, and I have it on the top of my syllabus, and I believe it, and I just believe it in my heart. And I tell myself this just in life, but I say, there is no path, just go. Mm-hmm. Because above all else, you just with writing, especially, you just have to do it. Yeah. You will write crap. You will also write genius. You don't stop though. You don't get caught up on one project. You find if you find yourself at a dead end, you try something new, but you don't go, you don't give up. Right. There is no path, just go. I love that. Super important for anyone who's listening. That's excellent advice. Um, and just to go back to what you're saying about teaching, is that kind of you following another passion or were you approached to do some teaching? I feel like you should always give back, you know, yeah. and I really wanted to give back in a way that I thought would be meaningful. And so, you know, teaching at a school like USC where these kids, they really care about the craft. Like it's a tough school to get into. They want to be there. They want to learn. It was like, oh, okay. So they're, I, I might be able to really like share something with them. I might be able to really help them. And that way, maybe beyond me, because I'm a gay man who lives with my husband and we have three cats and we'll probably never have children because I grew up in a huge family. I don't want to have kids. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to be, a, you know, just, just me and the cats. Um, but I love the idea of helping the next generation of writers mm-hmm. and knowing that maybe something that I say is going to affect them and is going to cause like the spirit and my sort of passion for writing to live on beyond me. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that and about giving back. I I have the same kind of frame of mind there. I think I think it's important to you know, you're learning from the person ahead of you. You turn around yeah. and you help the person who's coming up behind you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's a big, you know, that's a big USC thing, you know, the USC family is a big thing, but it's just in general, I think we have to to help others. And then you look at things like cinema and books and you go, you know, it's, if you look back on things from a hundred years ago, um, you know, people learned from those masters and they um, became better. And then people learn from them. And this is the way in which writing and storytelling evolves by helping those next, the next generation. And it's fascinating to watch them like come up with some new sort of um, way of telling a story or some new character that I've never really thought of. And I'm like, ah, this is great. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank God. There is hope, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Do you have projects in both areas going on at the same time or do you separate them and work on one at a time? You did sort of cover that, but was there anything else that you wanted to add to it? I am excited to potentially have a, we've been, we have two television series that I've been working on. And I'm excited for those in the sense that uh, I think there is the possibility with streaming and that there aren't as many limitations to storytelling and television as there were when it was a lot of just network TV. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's really exciting. It's also just such a, like I said, a different way of telling a story. And I do enjoy the visual part of that. So I'm working on a couple of television series and 
it's a whole thing in and of itself, just like book publishing, where there's all these moving parts and you have to just sort of trust yourself and your gut and you just keep doing it and you find, you know, I, I think especially, and this is something I would say to people that are in that are writing books or, or they want to get into television. And I tell this to my students, remember that when you go to look for an agent, it's like a marriage. You need to find people that truly believe in you and want to work with you and can see your bad side not like like you're vicious, but just like, oh, you didn't do so well on that draft. Yeah. It's okay. Because they see the bigger picture. It's a marriage. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and sometimes you go through a few marriages, you know, people, in the, and especially in Hollywood, it's like, uh, got married a little too quick. Just remember <laughs> that when the people that you're working with, the publishers, the agents, the editors, those people, it's a marriage. And they have to appreciate you as much as you appreciate them. And I think that the more that writers can love themselves and sort of believe in themselves in a really true, not a, not a sort of arrogant way, not an ego driven way, but a sort of like, I respect myself as a person and my space on this planet. I think that you're going to find people around that behave that way too. And when you do, that's when success really happens because that person that you're working with, the producer, the agent, the editor, they want the same thing that you do. Mm -hmm. When you think about a relationship, that's what you're looking for, you know, romantic relationship. Uh, So that's just, I don't know how I got off on that, but that's just another (laughs) little piece of advice I have. Wonderful advice. And it's absolutely correct. You, you want to find someone who can champion your story and believe in it. And, and you as a writer, just as much as you do. It's funny because I I just read, I think this morning, a tweet that said something about comparing, you know, agenting, finding an agent to, it's like dating. (laughs) Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. You have to kind of look for the things that work and keep an eye out for the things that might not work. And, you know, there is someone out there that yeah. will And that by will the way, you know, one of the things you learn as you sort of mature and you get into like, you know, you find, like I finally found my husband, which I literally thought was never going to happen. <laughs> I was like, before it happened, I was like, this is, um, yeah, I'm just going to be single the rest of my life. And Aww. I had sort of come to peace with that, which is maybe why it finally happened. Um, I'd also learned to sort of like love myself yes. fully for all my flaws. Yeah. Um, and then whenever I was able to do that, that's when he came along and he, he you know, was like, oh, my God. Like, I, I was literally like, dude, here are all my flaws. And he's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 that's fine. And I'm like, no, no, no. Here are my flaws. And it's like, <laughs> no, no, it's fine. So um, the thing that you learn is that, you know, I'm friends with all my exes. And uh, I just love them. I mean, I love them. And there was a time whenever we were like closer physically, but like we're still close emotionally, uh, mentally and spiritually. And I think when you get into the business, that's a good thing to remember too, is that, you know, you may break up with someone because you go like, look, this is not working anymore. Well, it may not, but they may still be a good person. Hopefully they are. And when you're in the business and something doesn't work out with an agent or, uh, you know, an editor or someone that's just working with you on a project, your book publicist, whoever it is, they're also a person 
And remember Mm -hmm. that like they are also struggling and they're also trying to figure things out and they're going to make mistakes and continue to just sort of like, just, you know, don't just burn all the bridges because I would say when I was a younger writer, that was something I was like, well, I didn't work. So I can't be a friend with you. And I can't. And that's the one thing, you know, especially when you're young, I guess that's the way you sort of feel like you just, it has to be very black and white. As you get older, you're like, oh, God, what a silly person. And so that's another thing. I just wish I could tell more people like, girl, calm down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know you're upset in the moment. Don't go scorching. You know, this is not a scorched earth moment. Yeah. Um, because two years from now, you're going to look back and go like, oh, yeah, I really did like certain aspects of that person. We're not together <laughs> anymore, but I still like them, you know. So. Yeah. Also super, super important. <laughs> um because you haven't obviously given enough advice. <laughs> my my final question for you was, what advice do you have to writers who are juggling different mediums for their creativity? Well, I think it goes back to that. There is no path, just go sort mm-hmm. of situation. And I also think that it's great to have different outlets for your creativity. I really think it's important and by the way, you're not necessarily going to be good at all those things. And that's totally fine. Like, for instance, I, I really hate writing feature films. I really do. <laughs> I find it like the most impossible thing that I've ever done in my life because it's so sort of open and closed and you have such a limited amount of like space with like dialogue and action lines in a script, 120 pages to get across an entire huge concept that might take a book 900 pages to get across, you know, Mm -hmm. I really hate writing feature films, but I still do it because it's good practice for me. And I think that that's important, you know, because you're going to learn something each and every different sort of creative outlet that you have, you're going to learn something there. And my husband and I, we joke a lot because he's terrible at art. He's just terrible. (laughs) And it's hilarious. But we do craft day together. Sometimes we will make, you know, like we'll get clay and make flowers or we'll get paints and like paint a picture. Yeah. And it's really fun because he's just so bad. It's almost just like (laughs) abstract art. I'm like, were you trying? But you know, what's brilliant (laughs) is that we have a really good time doing it. And I learned things from him, from watching him. And I know he learns things from watching me. And uh, that's just one of those things to also never forget, because of course, I'm just full of advice here. Like, (laughs) enjoy this process because you only have one life that we know of. This is it. And so, man, I know it's tough and it's tough for me. I have my days where I am just, but the thing is, if you enjoy writing and really enjoy it and don't worry about what anybody else is saying or what anybody else is thinking. Remember, if this is something that you feel like you do it and you feel good and it lifts your spirit at the end, that's all that matters. Yeah. And if it's, and if you're really doing it for yourself, I think that comes off the page. There's an energy that is imbued into those words and people will pick up on those and it will help other people too. Yes, absolutely. I agree 100%. And I think it is important to get that to to use and take advantage of those creative outlets, try something new. And like you said, you might be really terrible at it, but you're still learning, you're still gaining experience. And none of what you're doing is a waste, even if it doesn't work out because you're learning the whole time that you're doing it. 
And yeah. you're going and to the thing is, is like, later. Nothing is a waste. You know, people say like no regrets. I have so many regrets. <laughs> I mean, my I feel like my life, my the story of my life is just gonna be regrets by Josh. So, <laughs> but, That's your memoir. <laughs> yes, it's gonna be my memoir. It's just gonna be like regrets. Yeah. Um, but I will say this: like, I have tried to take every single one of my regrets and uh to learn from them. And to really like say like, okay, so I really messed up there, but you know what? The next time I'm going to do so much better. And uh, you can do the same thing with your writing. You know, we're going to write things and it's going to be like, oh man, what was I thinking? But the next time you're going to do it better. And you know what? One of these, there was a, there's a, a, a psychologist who said, someone was asking him like, does life get easier? And he's like, look, life is canoeing up a river. Uh, against you know against the current and he's like the current never stops you're always in the canoe but what happens is that you get better at rowing yeah and it doesn't get easier because the current gets less it gets easier because you get used to the process Mm -hmm. and uh, remember that in writing as well Yes. Oh my goodness. You are full of just gems. <laughs> That's wonderful. I'm here every day. <laughs> well, Josh, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure talking with you and, and getting to know you and, and your process. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Wow. So many pearls of wisdom from Josh today. I hope some of them resonate with you and they help you on your writing journey. Since I'm not doing pitch critiques until pitching season resumes in the new year, I wanted to keep this as interactive as possible with my listeners. So if you have a question about anything that's discussed in the episodes or anything that I go over in my writing advice segments, if you have a general question about writing or editing or even publishing, Fill out the form on my website at kathleenfox.com with two X's slash badass writers dash podcast. Either there or I have a pinned post right now on my Twitter page at underscore badass writers. I would love to try and help you find the answer. So fill out that form and it will come to me and I will answer it on the podcast. I'm also gearing up to have another Ask Agent session with a literary agent soon. So please send me your questions, DM me on Twitter, use the contact form on my website, or wait until you see a post on my Twitter page about it. Until next time, keep being badass.